Now the text that we read, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, says, Do not fear what they fear, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. So this is about the questions that come up, perhaps in conversation, perhaps somebody asks you a question or in effect asks you a question, and Peter's writing to all the Christians there, and he said we all ought to be able to give an answer. Uh, and I summarized it to say that to save other people, God is pleased to use people like us for his glorious work. So that's an encouragement that we don't have to be, don't have a PhD, we don't have to have been to Bible college. If we're Christians, we ought to be able to say something and God is prepared to use those things that we say. Now the, the question that we said we'd look at this evening is this one. So somebody says, your God is anti-gay or you Christians are anti-gay so that's in some shape or form a question that might be asked or a, uh, a comment that might be made and what I'm going to look at this evening is how do we what would we say Because I don't think it's a I don't think it's a right criticism I don't, think it's a, I don't think it is true that God is anti-gay or that Christians are anti-gay. But how do we answer it? Now, how might this be said? Now, it might be said aggressively. You can see I wasn't sure how many Gs to put in aggressively. It might be said aggressively, you know, you Christians, you're anti-gay. Uh, it might be said by people who are explicitly pro-gay, um, that's one of the things that they uh, push. So they might be pro-gay, they might be uh, part of the LGBT lobby, that's all those sort of uh, lumping all together, or it, it is lumped together under that heading. And uh, for example, some of the members of the Green Party, I think, would, would see themselves as taking that sort of position that they would say they are committed to um, quite strongly committed to what, what we might perceive as a gay agenda and you remember when all the fuss about uh, Christina Summers blew up uh, there were some people in the Green Party who in their blogs and in their writing were very forceful uh, against Christina and, and against Christians by implication and interestingly uh, at uh, some point I did a sermon about issues of homosexuality uh, and I think I did it quite carefully uh, and yet if you look in the Regency magazine if you look in the back copies of the Regency magazine somebody trawled through our website and found that sermon it's the only sermon I've ever preached on homosexuality and was very critical of uh, the treatment that I gave and said that it was um, cherry-picking texts and dealing with them in an unbalanced way. Uh, I, I think the person who wrote that had their own agenda, 
But anyway, so there we are. Now, not only from people who are aggressively pro-gay, but you might find something similar being said by what I've put down as fair-minded non-Christians. So they might say, I've got a problem with you Christians because you seem to be anti-gay. Let's put it that way. It's a little bit more polite, a little bit more muted. But um, uh, I can think of somebody who said, uh, I want to go to church, I'd like to go to church, but my girlfriend has a real problem with the way that Christians come across regarding gay issues. Okay? Now, I can go a little bit further and say we might even meet that sort of statement from fair-minded people who are Christians. So within the, the large umbrella which contains Christian, uh, there might be people who say something like that. You know, the church has got it wrong uh, traditionally and we should apologize. And I've put including, with a question mark, evangelicals. Evangelical means a particular strand within Christianity, a particular section of Christianity, which lays emphasis on the Bible. And even within people who say that they believe the Bible, there will be some who say, you know, the church has got it wrong. And I've put one other group of people from whom one might hear this, which would be family members. And for the last 30 or 40 years, uh, within the church or within the church family, some connection or another, uh, time to time people have come and said to me, uh, this is something that's arisen within my family, you know, son, nephew, uncle, auntie, whatever. Uh, so, uh, actually many of us might come across a question like this okay now then answers you may remember if you were here uh, previously I said there are two sorts of answer and type A is the one liner so if you can think of a one line short reply that is often the thing that we need. We don't, off, we don't always have time for a long conversation. We just need a quick answer. And we saw that Jesus was really, really good at this. He got into situations where people came at him. They weren't particularly interested in really knowing what he said. They just came at him with a, a, a question. And Jesus was a brilliant, brilliant at coming back with one line or just a sentence or a couple of sentences, bang. And he was able to uh, reply to the question in a fair way, uh, and, but it just hit the nail on the head quickly. Now there's that sort of answer, and there's B, type B, a longer, careful, nuanced answer. Don't always get the opportunity to give that, uh, a longer answer, a careful answer. The word nuanced, I'm taking to mean where you have, you might, something is so complicated, you might have to say, there is this to take into account, there is that to take into account, there is also something else to take into account, but the situation might be different if, or something like that. So there's, it, it's, there are shades of 
I say maybe shades of grey in some situations that, you, that it's quite difficult to explain unless you sit down and take time to do so. And what I've been aiming to do in these Sunday evenings is give answer type A. And that's really what I want to look at this evening, a quick answer. Now having said that, let's look briefly at what might be relevant to a type B answer, a longer answer. So I've put a few sort of bullet points here. They're bullet points without the bullet. Uh, so let me say answer, uh, in, in terms of answer B, here's, here's one thing. The Bible, if you read the Bible, uh, you will find, if you, I, I think you'll agree with me, that it does not have chapter after chapter and book after book constantly harping on about same-sex sex. Uh, those of you who've read the Bible, I know some of you have read the Bible lots of times. Would you agree with me that that is not a constant theme in the Bible? Would you agree? Yeah. So people might have the, if people haven't read the Bible, might have the impression that, that that's all that Christians believe or all that the Bible's on about. And the answer to that, or one part of the answer to that, is it really is not a major theme in the Bible. The Bible is not always going on about um, homosexuality. I'll tell you what it is constantly on about. The Bible is constantly pro-marriage. That is a big theme in the Bible. And as you will have noticed from our songs, that one of the fundamental things in the Bible, that's to say the relationship between Christ and the church, is regularly portrayed as a, a marriage relationship. And I think that's very significant because God is saying, if you want to understand what Christianity is about, here is one very good way to understand it. It is like, uh, like marriage, like a man and a woman, okay, two unlike creatures, don't want to don't want to overemphasize the unlikeness, but I would ask you to reflect on your own experience and do not think that actually men and women are somewhat unlike. Uh, so two unlike entities, Jesus and his church are unlike, and yet they're joined together. And it's a remarkable thing. Uh, if you've ever tried to work through a relationship between uh, husband and wife, uh, it takes quite a bit of doing actually because there's a wonderful complementarity, the two fit together and yet the two are unlike and sometimes you have to work that through. It's a bit of a miracle in itself and the, uh, the Bible says take that idea and then please understand that's how it is with Jesus Christ and the church. Uh, Christ and his church, two unlike things, yet here's the miracle that by God's grace they're joined together. And there's the, the qualities of marriage, things like faithfulness, things like exclusivity, things like uh, permanence, 
things like intimacy, all those things of human marriage, that's how to think of Christ and the church. And that runs its way right the way through the Bible and you think, well, hold on a minute, Jesus isn't in the Old Testament, to which that's correct, but the relationship between God, between Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, and his people is often described like a marriage. In fact, the Old Covenant is likened to a marriage. The Old Covenant being that part of the Bible, all of that. And departure from God, departure from faith is likened to cheating in a marriage, going off with another woman. Okay, so the Bible is not constantly anti-same-sex sex, but it is very strongly pro-marriage. And the Bible assumes regularly that se- uh, the Bible is pro-sexual activity, but it is always understood that sexual activity is only within marriage. So if you like, so that, that's the positive constant theme So if you like, you could say that one thing the Bible is against is it's anti-secret sex in the sense that it's between two people who've never made a public commitment. It's against promiscuous sex because sex is meant to be exclusive and permanent. And it's against uncovenanted sex. A covenant is when you make a commitment and a promise so if you want to say let me just at the risk of repeating myself it isn't constantly going on about homosexuality but by implication and actually explicitly it is against sex outside marriage whether it is you know whatever sex it is Uh, so that's um, sort of bullet point number one. Does that make sense? Now let's look at two texts in Leviticus. Uh, These come up uh, from time to time and I'm only going to deal with them very quickly. I'm not giving a proper answer B. But these would be referred to Leviticus 18.22 and I'm not cherry picking these I'm simply saying that there are relatively few references in the Old Testament explicit references to homosexuality and these are they so Leviticus 18 verse 22 says do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman that is detestable And it's in a context of quite a lot of things. If you look in Leviticus 18, you'll see that the translators in the New International Version have put a heading, unlawful sexual relations. The book of Leviticus is about order. It's about the things that are right in order compared with the things that are wrong in order. Because the book of Leviticus is saying that the universe is an ordered universe particularly the universe of relationships and of humanity uh, has order to it. And what Leviticus is against is a 
a contravening of that order and um, it flags that up in various ways and some of the ways in the New Testament uh, are unnecessary to flag up again and they fall away and so you will probably be told that in Leviticus we're forbidden to eat shellfish uh, well we're forbidden to eat all sorts of um, food that would be ceremonially unclean and people would say okay so that means the whole of the book of Leviticus is obsolete and I said I don't think that is a correct way of handling the material in Leviticus anyway Leviticus 18.22 this is something that is out of the natural order it's forbidden and a strong word is used it's detestable and I just there's the reference and I'm not going to take that any further in Leviticus 20 verse 13 it says if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman both of them have done what is detestable they must be put to death their blood will be on their own heads that's the verse I'm not reading all the other verses surrounding it but you're very welcome to do so I simply make the point here that it's not talking about rape it might you might be you might or it might be said ah what what's being criticized here is not that you've got two like sex people having sex he says the point is it is being forced on one of them unwillingly that's the problem now I'm going to say having sex forced on anyone unwillingly is wrong but that's not what's being pointed out here because if you see it says both of them have done what is detestable both of them are put to death their blood will be on their own heads so in Leviticus it's it, what is being criticized here is not something that was done unwillingly to a victim uh, it says both of them are willing in this and uh, it, it does in fact carry the death penalty so I'm, I'm just going to pass over that and say that what have I put on there uh, there's a strong word used for what is wrong here <coughs> abomination or detestable and if we were to look at it more closely I think we could make a very strong case that it's not wrong accidentally or it's not wrong in some way which is going to be um, obsolete when Jesus comes I think it's more profound than that he's looking at the order between the sexes and saying that uh, marriage between unlike woman and man is the norm and this does not fit in with that norm there are two other classic texts which I will refer to briefly one is in the book of Romans so we've gone thousands of years ahead as you know the Bible spans hundreds and thousands of years so we've gone from the Old Testament into the New Testament this is Romans chapter 1 <coughs> and the letter to the Romans is written by the Apostle Paul he's setting out I think we could say uh, his, the basic things that he believes and preaches the way he sees things what he, what he says to people in Romans 1 verse 24 
uh, or actually we go start in verse 21. He talks about humanity in its, uh, the human condition. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And the, there's a sin mentioned there. Anybody like to say what the sin is or sins? Idolatry, yep. And before idolatry, because the idolatry God hands people over to, what, what comes before the idolatry? Uh, yeah, ignoring God. Yeah. Failing to glorify God and failing to thank him. Now, in fact, those are the profound sins. And there's a sort of avalanche of things that follows on from that, but that's where the avalanche starts. They knew God. They were irreverent to God. They didn't glorify him. And they didn't thank him. Now that's the, in the way Romans talks, those are the foundational sins, irreverence and ingratitude. And God says, if you're going to treat me like that, if you're going to push me away, then I will, I will, I will give you, I will let you see what that, how that works out. I will hand you over to do the things that you think are best and see what a mess it makes. And this, this is how it goes on. <coughs> Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the dishonoring of their bodies with one another. So he's saying that sexual muddle and confusion and ignobility, things that are not noble, comes as God hands humanity over he says you know if you don't want me then I'll, I'll stand back from you see what sort of a mess you get into they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is pr forever praised because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were with inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their wanderings, probably better translation, their error. So Paul does mention homosexuality here. He is not saying this is the great sin all sin, this is the problem with your society, uh, homosexuality. What he says, the problem with your society is ingratitude and irreverence. And if you want to see what, where this is flagged up in your society, see what muddle and mess happens to sexual behavior. The fundamental sin is refusal and irreverence and ingratitude. And what he's saying about homosexuality is it's iconic. It sort of particularly shows uh, if 
people don't want God who is other they want created things which are more or less the same as themselves God says okay well let's see how that works out in sexual life instead of the, this capacity and, uh, and the nobility of two unlike creatures joining together man and woman you'll see uh, that same uh, link up together and one other text which is in 1 Corinthians 6 9 to 11 where Paul is talking to Christians so we're still in the New Testament still with the same writer Paul he's now talking to his church members in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 11 and he's uh, well this is what he says do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived so he's saying you can't be a Christian if you carry on like this neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and that is what some of you were but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God well I won't go through all of that because there's some long words there which need explanation but he is saying he's got a list of things and he says you can't carry on being that and doing that if you're a Christian and he doesn't just single out um, homosexuality he does mention it he includes I presume all sorts of sexual immorality so heterosexual promiscuity or sex outside marriage and he includes idolaters he includes adulterers he says thieves and greedy people and uh, drunkards slanderers and swindlers so again he's not singling out he's not just being anti-gay but he, he does say you can't continue that way and in particular he seems to say your identity changes and with uh, homosexuality it would appear that uh, people feel very strongly this is who they are and that's what Paul says that's what some of you were that's what some of you were but in Christ there is deeply and powerfully a new identity um, and again I'm, I'm not trying to give a full answer to this I'm just giving some bullet points let's give another bullet point here uh, there's a difference I think we should understand between inclination and temptation and actual sin of mind or body so whether if you are uh, a uh, heterosexual you are you might be tempted sexually towards the opposite sex so um, you might be inclined 
uh, to admire, like uh, members of the opposite sex. And there's nothing wrong with that inclination. Uh, you might, it might go further than you might be tempted to behave improperly towards the opposite sex. Uh, temptation is different from sin. Uh, temptation might lead to sin, but being tempted isn't sin. And then from temptation, there may be actual sin, be it of the mind or be it of the body. And I simply point that out because that is true for heterosexual people as homosexual people. Uh, so there has been in the uh, Christian publishing world a, a number of prominent Christian ministers who have said, I think, with great courage, but with integrity and consistency, that for them, uh, and it has been this way since their, perhaps their teenage years or even younger, their inclination is that they admire and are attracted to um, people of the same sex. That's an inclination. They may or may not want that. It might lead to temptation it might lead to actual sin. But the, the Christian ministers I'm referring to say, please understand, this is not something I've ever uh, um, made into an actual sin, and I'm not intending to, but you're tempted with some things, and this is the thing that I'm tempted with. So I'm just asking that we should understand that situation. Uh, and I think I'll stop doing my bullet points there because it's... Um so that's the thing that I'm not going to talk about because that was answer B. So let's talk about answer A, the one-liners. So you don't have time to go through all that with a one-liner. So somebody says, so I went down to the open market some years ago now, said who I was, come round to visit you and the gentleman uh, said uh, I'm a homosexual you're against me aren't you so what do I say I'll tell you what I did say I said we're all sinners shake a hand nice to see you I'll come back another time uh, now you had a good one liner didn't you didn't you Yes, tell us what, what you said and why you, uh, under what circumstances you said it. I put that down, but I couldn't get it into one one line. God sent His Son for to die for you. I think we can say that. I mean, there's sort of theological nuance that we might like to put put to it if we had time. But I put God sent His Son to die for straight people and gay people.
for murderers and selfish people, for bankers and terrorists, and you can councillors and MPs and uh, drug users, and you just the the list is is whatever humanity contains. Those are the two one-liners that I uh, I could think of. Uh, I'll tell you why I think they're important, and then see what you think. I think the idea of sin, we should not let people think that God singles out gay people and says, you're sinners and everybody else isn't. Because the whole point of being a Christian is to say, I'm a sinner. I'm not a Christian because I'm good. I'm a Christian because I know I'm a sinner and I need Jesus Christ to die for my sins. And if there's any way we can put that across, that needs to be put across. And that's the second answer is about God's attitude to sinners. God is not saying, well, I like you, but I don't like you. And I feel rather at home with you, but I don't feel at home with you. God is saying, you're all as bad as one another. You're all, all of you, from you know the king and queen, if you want to take a Victorian hierarchy to whatever, <laughs> all sinners, and Christ died for all sorts of people. And God's attitude is not that some of you are rather nice, but you're all sinners, and I am moving out to everyone in love because Christ died for all sorts of people and uh, just trying to just repeating myself aren't I but that the cross is there for everyone and nobody should think that they're so bad that the cross isn't for them and nobody should think that they're rather good so that the cross isn't for them you see my point on that? Okay, I'm going to stop there. So we usually have a few minutes if anybody wants to ask a question or has any observations to make. I don't intend to draw this out till everybody collapses uh, in sleep. So any thoughts and questions? Uh, so, so the question is what, what we might say to the, to the uh, comments. Some people are born with uh, an inclination an attraction towards the, sa the, the same sex. Anybody got any answers to that? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, we're all tempted to some wrongdoing. So, if, you know, if people are born with an in a, a heterosexual inclination, it doesn't mean that they're, they're therefore um, uh, excused, as it were, to have sex with anybody they want to. That would be sin, too. Um, Yes, yes, he did. Yes, that's right. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there was a, was a thought that there was such thing as a gay gene, wasn't there? But I don't think anybody realistically ever, has ever, ever found such a thing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to contradict somebody who said I've always felt this way we had um, a Christian chap come speak whenever it was October was it who said that he'd felt that way from a child uh, 
Um, I just don't think that saying this is the way I feel can ever say, therefore, I can act according, or I'm excused in acting according to the way I feel, because that that's not right, is it? We we can feel such and such a way, doesn't mean that we have to act that way. No. Okay. <laughs> I don't think the Bible is particularly clear or definite on that. I wouldn't be, I, I, I wouldn't find it strange uh, that people might be born with a particular weakness for a particular sort of sin. So some people are born, perhaps because they're very capable, with the weakness or the, the, the inclination for power. Uh, and they find it within their capacities to control other people and to get their own way. Uh, but to be born with that capacity and inclination, I still think is not an excuse for um, that you just do whatever you're inclined to do. I think we're all, we're all born with different sorts of temptation, aren't we? I mean, our, our makeup inclines us to different temptations. I mean, selfishness, for example. We're all born selfish, aren't we? Anybody here not born selfish? <laughs> I wish I could think of a quick answer to that, but for the sake of the, uh, the recording, somebody put up their hand and said they weren't born selfish. I think we're all born selfish, but that does not an excuse for acting selfishly, is it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorts of ways. That's part of the pickle that we're in. That's why we need such a mighty saviour. And can I just say one other thing? I think it's so important that we treat everybody as people. Uh, people are made in the image of God, therefore they are valuable in themselves, whatever sin they may or may not be involved in. And I think it's also important that we stand up for the rights of people to be treated as people. There is no excuse for anybody to be victimized, insulted, belittled for whatever it is. And we should stand up that that shouldn't be the case. Uh, so it's very important that we treat people as people and people for whom, who are made in the image of God and potentially for whom Christ died. I'll stop there. Shall we stop there?